Today's guest name is Casey Glass. Casey works in the world of strength and conditioning. She's worked her way up through the university ranks, starting actually as a soccer player and then moving into strength and conditioning right away out of there, cutting her teeth and mastering her craft to ultimately end up where she is now, which is with a company that specifically contracts with special operations, strength and conditioning. Of course, we talk about the training, but we also talk about the culture, what it's like for her to work with the uh, other allied fitness and health professionals that she works with along the way. Casey is full of nuggets. I really enjoyed this conversation because she really is no nonsense, gets right down to brass tacks. If you're in the world of special operations, have been, maybe aspire to, or currently are, I think there's some real key takeaways here. I'm actually very uh, interested in meeting with Casey again and going a little deeper on some more of the training topics themselves. So hope you guys enjoy this episode with Casey Glass as much as I enjoyed the conversation. Welcome to Iron Sights. This podcast candidly seeks to create opportunities and deliver impact by sharing the experiences and wisdom of successful entrepreneurs and thought leaders who unapologetically aim to win in health, fitness, business, and life. I'm your host, Scott Howell. Welcome to Old School Meets New School. Tradition meets innovation and imperfection meets excellence. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Iron Sights Podcast. I've got Casey Glass of Warfighter Health and Performance. Casey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Scott. I am super stoked to have you. This is a uh, sort of a treat for me. We had an opportunity to connect uh, very recently. We it, it was a conversation that kind of went on and on, and I was like, we should have hit record on this when we started because we covered so many interesting topics in my mind that I think a lot of people are going to have you know, questions or, or that would be curious to hear and whatnot. And, um, you, you come at, you're, you're in a very, very specific niche and I'm going to have you talk about that, but, uh, this should be an interesting conversation for anybody that is in the world of, uh, human performance, specifically if they are an operator that has had to go through selection process or is maybe preparing to go through a selection process, because that is sort of your expertise at present. So, I'm going to turn it over to you, Casey. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm a strength conditioning coach. I work with a special operations unit right now. I've been there for about 10 years. Uh, prior to that, I was actually working in collegiate athletics. I worked at the University of Arkansas for a while in Purdue University. Um, and then my background as an athlete is I was a soccer player at TCU way back in the day. How, how did you find your way into human performance, strength and conditioning? Was that just kind of, because I know a lot of people will get there, like uh, they found their way into the training room somehow, like they were injured and then they had to go through this process. And then part of that process, they fell in love with kind of the solutions that exist there when things are applied in a certain way. Was Did it happen for you that way? Or was this just something you always knew you wanted to do? Did you kind of land in it somehow? I'm curious. If I look back on it, I think the signs were there early on, but I didn't know what a strength coach was until I had one in college. Mm. And even then, I wasn't thinking about what I wanted to do for a living in those terms until my senior year. So I just, I really enjoyed working with my strength coach. I was a weight room kid. I was better in the weight room than I was on the field. That's where I won <laughs> things. That um, so that me. felt good. Mm-hmm. And my senior year, I was babysitting for a woman who was a personal trainer and interning with our strength and conditioning coach. 
And I told him, you know, I'm trying to figure out between these two professions, which one I should do. And he sat me down. He was very serious. His name was Joe. He says, Casey, you cannot be a personal trainer. You're going to kill somebody. You have to be a strength (laughs) coach. You have to intern with me. So that's where I really locked it in. Um, But I had a soccer coach freshman year who was the first person that really taught me how to lift weights at all. And then um, she left. We didn't have anybody taking us through weightlifting at all for the rest of my high school career. But I would just take myself to the YMCA and just do the few things, you know, squats, lunges, and machines mostly because I really didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that it was important. And I think that really transferred over four years of that really transferred over because when I was in college, you know, by sophomore year, I was pretty strong compared to the rest of my team that had just started lifting freshman year. And that's where I would win things. I could hang clean the most. I could was could jump the highest. It was like me and our goalkeeper could jump the highest. Um, maybe wasn't the fittest on the, the soccer test, but I couldn't be beat in a sprint. And all of those things were the result of just years of strength training that everybody else didn't have and being really committed to learning from our strength coach. If he told me to change how I was running, I did it, which isn't necessarily common in a student athlete, uh, which I can tell you because I coached student athletes for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about that transition because it's one thing to have a passion and study and maybe go to school for this, you know, exercise, you know, uh, exercise science. I assume there's probably a, there's, there's a degree there or whatever, and then you kind of move on. But that transition into strength and conditioning is a whole other thing. Like, how did that happen for you? Like, talk about your your entry into, uh, you know, the interning and then ultimately this turning into a job. What's the reality of that? So I interned at TCU for, gosh, six, seven, maybe eight months. So that meant whenever I wasn't in class, I was in the weight room, um, started out with basketball and then moved over to football, golf, and really who equestrian, whoever they needed an extra hand with. Um, and then from there, applied to get a graduate assistant position at Purdue. So they paid for my grad school, and I worked 13-hour days and went to school at night. So yep. luckily, I was young and had energy to do that. Um, Common tale. Yeah. So that was it's great. I would never would have gone to grad school if it wasn't for free. Um, great experience, learned a lot. I had my own teams right away. Um, and my main team was diving, which was really cool because A, they trusted me to have my own team and gave me the bandwidth. They said, um, the head coach there was like, look, I, when I was starting out, they threw me into the fire. I learned by failure and I learned, you know, with some successes as well, but I think that's the best thing. And that's what I'm going to do for you. Holler if you need help basically. So I would help them with their teams and then had a few of my own and with diving. So the first thing I did is I looked for literature on how to train divers and I found one whole article. That's it. That was it. And it was just on injuries and just what are the most, I always start with what are the most common injuries and work backwards from there because you can get metrics from the coaches themselves, from the sport coaches, but um, Mm -hmm. injuries, injury mechanisms. So I found an article on diving injuries and then talk to the coach, talk to the athletic trainer and just had to figure it out myself. And luckily it worked out and they appreciated what I did. And even though it was a lot of work and long hours, it was a great time. I was definitely in the right career field. 
I think this, so this is a common tale. And so I've had, <clears throat> pardon me, other strength coaches on in the past that have worked at the next level, you know, of, you know, start getting the NC2A, you've sort of arrived. That's it. I mean, people go on to the pros and they work with other people like you're doing now, but their journey is usually like looking back at it. They have so much appreciation for all the things that they went through and they're, Nobody's ever resentful because if they've made it to your level, they recognize that those lessons were necessary to put them in a position to be successful where they are now, which ultimately helps you help the higher achiever, which is who you're working with now, obviously sort of uh, top tier type type folks, um, whether that's in sport or in your case, special operations. But you know that, that, that means a lot of late nights, a lot of sleepless nights, probably a lot of phone calls in the middle of the night with issues or problems, having to figure it out. Um, having to, you know, lug water coolers and, you know, clean up messes and rewack weights, just all the stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that mopping the floor, yeah. you know, that comes along with, with being, uh, you know, somebody new in that situation, all the stuff they don't teach you in school, you know, kind of thing. Um, they always look back and they're always very grateful for those things. They never look at it as a hardship. They just look at it as, as this was part of the journey. Um, and they always kind of say it with a chuckle and a smile, just like you're doing. So I, uh, it's it's good to hear. At the same time, I talk to so many people that say, oh, I want to be a strength and conditioning coach, but they have no idea, you know, kind of what they're getting themselves into. So flashing forward now, so you, you kind of go through this, uh, this collegiate experience, NC2A athletics, lots of different teams. Uh, so lots of different, lots of different bodies, lots of different personalities, lots of different things going on there. Then you, is it, I mean, how, how long do you stay there before you make this transition into special operator, um, the special operator world? So I was at free for two years. I was at Arkansas for almost five years and I loved it there. We had a great culture, a good thing going. Um, it's a great place to live in Fayetteville. Um, but then I learned that strength coaches were getting hired for special operations units. It wasn't okay. a thing before. It was brand new. Um, and my brother was an operator. He's the one that told me about it. So I had been programming for him and his buddies. And he's the one that told me they were hiring strength coaches. Um, and so next time I visited him, I met their strength coach. And he kind of filled me in and said, yeah, we're going to be hiring a lot of strength coaches this next year across SOCOM. So just you know, send me your resume if you're interested. And so I started applying for those jobs because as much as I loved it at University of Arkansas, and I had a great boss great athletes, great coworkers, mm-hmm. great schedule, great coaches. Um, there wasn't a worthier clientele mm-hmm. to me than special operators in terms of they deserve the help. Like working with collegiate athletes is fantastic. You are mentoring them. They need it. They're, they're students. They are kids. Some of them are 22, 23, but they're still kids and they need mentors and they need good ones, um, which is why I was drawn to that field originally. Um, but with special operators i just felt like they need you know the best help out there and i felt that that was something that i could work at and provide um and my brother really encouraged me so i just kept applying and then got one of the positions that's interesting the connection there with your with your brother that is not something that came up in our previous conversation you said so this is 10 years ago correct so we're looking at mm-hmm. somewhere near 2012 2013 mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of things were changing during that time, this being one of them, just sort of how fitness, performance training, uh, let's say resiliency and uh, 
recovery started to be managed a little bit different at that level. They're recognizing these guys are going hard. They're going long. They're doing things that, uh, you know, they're breaking. They're broken. Yeah. You know, a lot of times by the time they get there, just from before they even got to where they, they, they might be in their career, just going through selection processes and qualifications and all the training they do, they're often broken. So, um, you know, how, how much of that could we have mitigated? Um, you know, is being as big and strong as you possibly can really the right thing for these quote unquote athletes? You know, like how do we, should we be changing our approach to, you know, obviously the conditioning piece to get them to where they need to be, but what happens afterwards? I talked to a lot of guys that were in that transition that, um, that really benefited by that and learned a ton, like, and just got really smart around their fitness, their recovery, their training and stuff like that. So that's interesting. You're walking in right at that time. Um, so you get hired. What is like, obviously you get, you get hired. What is that? What is that process like? so new into kind of what was happening with SOCOM at the time? We were all new. A whole herd of us, our athletic trainers, a dietitian, psychologist, we were all brand new. And um, our director of performance, he said, you know, for the first six months, you're basically an observer. Like you're going to be out there mm-hmm. coaching and doing things, but don't feel pressure to jump in because it's, and he had worked in NCAA. Everybody did at some point, like he said. Um, like it's just, it's not like other places, even the schedule and the way things are run. So just kind of take your time. Um, which for me lasted for two weeks. And I was like, please give me somebody to coach. Like, I have to, I got to jump in here. I can't right. just keep observing, but he meant it to say like, it's going to be a while before you're good at this. None of us really know what perfect looks like or what right looks like. Um, so yeah. And then the guys also, They never had strength coaches before. A lot of them didn't come up through collegiate athletics. And so everything was new to them. They'd been completely on their own in regards to their fitness. They'd never been coached before. Now you've got people on the floor, you know, staring at you, offering corrections. Um, You had your guys that were really big into strength and power and not much conditioning. And they thought that that's how an operator should train. And then you had the complete inverse of guys who were just like running and surfing all the time and doing calisthenics and had a great aerobic capacity, but not a ton of strength. And they thought that's how an operator should train. And they'll both tell mm. you that when you ask, how I'm should sure. I be training you? <laughs> These um, guys are usually pretty outspoken. Yeah. So you start implementing some testing and you just, you ask questions because you don't know. None of us were operators before. None of us were in the military. We know that we knew that we didn't know. And it was going to take us a while to figure it out. But if the guys were willing and the command was willing to, you know, feed us information that we could, we could get there eventually. And that's, that's really no different than collegiate athletics. I'd never seen divers dive outside of on TV. I'd never seen anything mm-hmm. equestrian related. Every school you go to, you get handed some new sports. A lot of the time you just have to figure it out. Um, but I don't think I was really good at it, especially the selection piece, I would say till a few years ago. Yeah, obviously there's going to be a journey here and everybody's on that journey at all ends of the spectrum, the direct user, the coach, the end user, there's so many things to figure out. Mm-hmm. I, so I guess my question in this is, is like, when, what was the first thing you realized you did know? Like you said, like, we didn't know, we didn't know, we were trying to figure out what was the big, what was the first thing that popped up for you that, st- that stands out that the needed new- to be addressed? Yeah. 
Oh, the first two months I was there was horrified. I thought everybody was going to hurt themselves. I was pretty much in a panic at all times. Um, because at that point, they'd only had it like one or two coaches, so they couldn't watch everybody all the time anyway. And not everybody was going to listen to them, so they were only there you know, a little while before we came. Um, just the, the movement quality. Guys just didn't know. They didn't know how to hit good positions. Um, and everybody was, you know, everybody was on the barbell all the time. Mm. Even if they've never done a goblet squat, you know, ever in their life, they're back squatting. So just trying to figure out how to go up to this stranger who doesn't know you is honestly suspicious of me because they weren't used to having females around and it was around the time where the conversation was, do we let females into special operations? So they thought I was there to do some secret study or something for a long time. Oh, wow. So I had to work around that to gain some trust. Um, and then how do you get them to just to maybe regress a little bit, take the weight down a little bit and work on movement quality before they ramp back up? That was the biggest That's thing. Yeah, that is not an easy task. I mean, with, with any with any person that's been doing something for a while, like you're introducing something new, you're not telling them they're doing it wrong. You're suggesting that they might be able to get done better, but you're also talking about a very high achiever who's been scored it probably and evaluated on every single thing that they do. One of the biggest fears is part of my language, but fucking up. And the second one is failing, not just failing themselves, but failing the other people on the team. Um, and I think a lot of people can relate to that inside or outside of, you know, special operations. If you've been on a team, those are, those are legit fears. So, uh, and concerns, and I think they're, they're valid. They're, they're certainly valid. How, I guess the question is, is like, how do you do that? How do you overcome that? And you did bring up the female to male component here, which I, I want to reserve the right to come back to later. Um, but how do you do that? Because it's not something that you can do quickly. This is something that has to be, the word I would use is like nurtured uh, over time. Can you explain that that process, like how, how you did that? So one of the things I would do is if I noticed somebody was, you know, they're benching, they rack the bar, they rub their shoulder. Okay, something's going on there and they're aware of it. They're squatting mm-hmm. or deadlifting, they rack the bar, they rub their SI joint. So I would use those as like a good point to make a connection like, mm-hmm. Hey, like I saw you rubbing your shoulder there. Is everything okay? What's going on there? Um, and if they admit to it hurting, then I could make some suggestions on technique on changing technique. Right. And right. then if they were open to that and it still wasn't working and we formed a bit of a relationship, then I could make suggestions as to maybe altering the lift a little bit and just very slowly work backwards from there. And then the other technique I use, um, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of postural restoration, which mm-hmm. if you don't know what that is, um, it's to help you gain movement quality and it's coordinating exercises with how you're breathing. So it's, it, they look like rehab exercises if you're trying to imagine it in your head. Um, and ideally, some of them you're doing, you're like laying on the ground, feet up on a table, and you're blowing through a balloon. So our head coach was like, Hey, if you can get one of these guys to blow through a balloon, more, more power to you. I, you know, I don't know what Best to tell you. Best of luck with that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what to tell you on that. So I looked around and I found the most intimidating looking person in the room who had been there for you know, probably close to 18 years. 
at that point wow. he'd been shot multiple times maybe even blown up once um so and you had a lot of aches and pains understandably um so i just kind of forged that relationship and he's super nice guy very trusting uh, and he let me try this stuff with him right away and within a week you know he's on his back blowing through a balloon i'm like if guys see him doing it now it's cool mm-hmm. now it's something that might be useful and that was really helpful whether you knew it or not, I mean, I, I, was that instinctual or was there like a lot of strategy to this or did you just go, well, oh, okay, I'm going for it. Let's, let's see if it happens. Like wh- where was that coming from? Cause I have some thoughts here. I mean, that was definitely my strategy. It was somebody okay. that he was very friendly. I was building a relationship with them. Okay. Um, everybody in the gym knew him. He was in there every day. So he was, you know, forging relationships with all the staff that were there. And I knew a lot of guys really liked him and respected him. Yeah, I think that's interesting, you know, going to, you know, a lot of maybe a new new coaches, new strength coaches, you know, wherever you're coming into the situation, whatever environment you might be, is that, yeah, don't talk to the vet. Like, don't talk to that guy because he's been doing it long enough and you're just going to get shredded, roasted, you know, blackballed if you're trying to, don't tell the guy that's been doing it for 18 years how to do it right, right? Which is mm-hmm. not what you said you were going to do. You're just trying to help him be better at what he was already doing. But what's interesting in, the, in that conversation, and I've worked with several athletes at different levels, and, and a few of the guys, guys, uh, I would say types like you may be working with, and what I found is the more senior they are, the, actually the more open they are to this stuff because they recognize all the mistakes that they made in the past, right? And all the things that if they had just done this maybe a little bit differently or listened when it was told to them, or they just never had the information they recognize the value in it later down the road and they're trying that longevity is a priority for them. Uh, you know, especially at 18 years, 18 years as an operator, like you're, you're going to be broken in so many ways, right? I mean, you sort of mentioned that aches, pains, all kinds of stuff, shot, blown up. Um, you, you are looking to, if anything that takes my pain away, anything that helps me get that little bit of edge that I may have lost over the years because of the injuries I've had, or just the fact that I'm aging and things happen or whatever else, I'm going to take that advice. I think so. I think like that is a great lesson for anybody that may be entering into any level of this that don't be intimidated by those people because number one, they're often, not all the time, but they're often very open to this stuff. Mm-hmm. And two, the next question would be how influential was that? And you mentioned like that was the ticket because, you know, talk about how that influenced other people. What was the next thing that happened? I mean, were people just like, all right, I'm ready to blow up balloons now? Or was it, was it something else? I mean, you still have to find the door with each person. There needs to be a sign that they're, something they're doing isn't working and they probably know it. Um, but then when I would ask them to like, all right, I'm going to have you lay on your back, put your feet up on this table, pull through a balloon. They say, oh, I've seen so-and-so doing this. Right. So now I'm more comfortable with it. And to this right. day, it helps. If there's two or three guys doing some positional breathing drills, in the facility and the other guys just see it and walk around, then if you bring it up as a solution for them, they're really open to it. But if they haven't seen it before, it sounds weird. Yeah. I So I have questions about this. So that's kind of at the beginning stages of this. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but maybe circle back. Like as this thing has evolved, I mean, you're 10 years down the road. How are things different now in terms of entering in with the group uh, based on the history that they've had, you've had, the program has had so forth versus what it was now. So just, I guess the question is, is like, how has it evolved? How is it different now than it was then in terms of 
accepting the, you know, what you're bringing to the table. Do you have to work as hard? Not to convince people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm at the point now, I've been there long enough that people know who I am before I know who they are because a friend told them I might be able to help them with something. So pretty much they can come to me by name at this point. Um, in, in this culture, word of mouth is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can you know, build up your initial clientele, and if you do a good job, they're going to tell their friend. If their mm-hmm. friend's going to say, hey, you know, what workout program are you on? What are, whatever you're doing looks like it's working. And then they'll send you to whoever helped them with that thing. And that's across the board for the whole staff. That includes the dietitians, the psychologists, athletic trainers, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain obviously amount of trust and respect that has to be built there. Again, ten years, I you know, I question that. Like, that's a long time to be anywhere in the strength and conditioning world. That is an eternity to be somewhere, unless you're like you're a made coach with maybe another coach. And I think maybe the example I used when we talked before was like Nick Saban, right? Yeah. Like, if you're Nick Saban's strength and conditioning coach, you're gonna be there as long as Nick Saban's gonna be there, yeah. right? And then mm-hmm. if he moves. You're going to the next. You're going to the next place. But on the flip side of that, if I don't want to say maybe this is coming out the wrong way, but if you're just a coach, like you're you're on the staff, right, and you're not mm-hmm. that made coach with that made head coach, usually if the head coach leaves, so does the strength and conditioning program. It's gone. Um, can you talk about the culture or your your job's gone and you're you're looking for another job um, unless you've established your value at such a high level that others coming going out are talking about it and those coming in are very quickly recognizing it uh and so they recognize like this is a person we got to keep around can you talk about that culture there kind of how it works um between staff you know like staff to staff and you know maybe what that turnover looks like what the infrastructure sort of looks like and how that you know government is a weird place Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of how things move, how things change, how they don't move or don't change, you know, that kind of thing. And then, and then also compare that maybe against the culture of that, you know, like the team guys or whatever, whoever it is that you're working through that are coming through there and how they, how you guys interact or interplay there. That's a big question, but I'm just curious because I've never talked to anybody um, that's doing exactly what you're doing. So I know it's not the same at every unit, but we haven't had too much turnover. Uh, one, two, two of us have been there for 10 plus years, two for eight. Wow. wow. Um, we have an athletic trainer that's been there for over 10 years. Um, when people come, they tend to stay for at least a good five years, I would say. So we're pretty lucky. But I have heard at other units that's not the case. And I know of other units that, sister units and stuff that have had a lot of turnover. Um, and I think it's, it's just a field training conditioning. It's not a lucrative field for most of us. Yep. Um, so you have to really love what you're doing. Um, and then some people just maybe don't like their location necessarily as much mm. as they thought they would. Um, yeah, but the guys, they, they rebound pretty well. Like they're definitely upset if they come to work and somebody's gone. That's not what they want. Um, uh-huh. but they're willing to, talk we're at a point in the culture where they're very willing to talk with a new person which was not the case when i first got there it was a lot of work so i think the culture itself outside of us just the culture maybe the culture across the whole country but specifically at this unit is a lot more open 
That's that's interesting uh, because usually it's you know play things very close to the chest mm-hmm. in the strength and conditioning world. You, they kind of can eat their own sometimes, or there's always like the grass is greener on the other side. I mean, you're working with a, a very specific community. I'm sure there's not a ton of you like nationwide that are right. doing this. Do you have any idea? Like, what does it what does it look like? Um, uh, how many how many folks do what you do? I don't know. They've expanded quite a bit. They've been on a big push okay. um, to get all kinds of special operations units connected with performance teams, and now conventional forces have started hiring as well. So H2F is the Army's holistic health program for conventional forces. So they've been hiring athletic trainers and coaches. I'm not sure if they're hiring psychs and dietitians or not, but they wanted to copy the model that special operations have because they're seeing the value in it. And so they're willing to spend money on it. That's positive. I mean, these are, these are athletes. We should be treating them and Mm -hmm. treating them that way. So at, at every level. Okay. Um, that's the job. We sort of covered that. Thanks for that. I had some questions there. I was curious about, let's talk about like the training, uh, and sort of the, and the things that you do. I think that people are very curious. I am. So we talked about like what the, what the, like kind of the, the biggest eye opener was when you got there and what you had to sort of overcome. I find that, you know, movement, obviously movement quality is the foundation for everything you're going to do with somebody from an athletic per- perspective. So that's always going to be a focus, but Let's talk about like where the gaps are uh, just sort of in a, um, or maybe specifically like, where are you getting folks? Like, where are you getting these guys in their journey? Um, I mean, you mentioned having the 18-year vet with maybe some of the, the younger guys in there, but where are you typically getting these guys and what are you helping them to do or get ready for? I get them at all points in time in their career. So I'll I'll meet a lot of the new guys right away. And they're probably the least likely to stick to a program. They can get, you know, they're 18, well, they're 19, like 20, 20 to 24. So they can get away with anything in terms of movement quality, pretty much. Um, And get some kind of a result. Yeah. yeah. Because they're they're young, right? Yeah. 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 So they might, you know, get on one of our programs for a little bit and then get drawn to something else and kind of program hop around, which is fine. Because like you said, they're going to get their results and they're going to be resilient to it. Um, so I'll say on and off that younger group will kind of hop in with us and out and then back in. Um, our big goal there is to establish the connection because yeah, like if you want to do a program off the internet, that's great. We would love it if you would bring it to us though, just in case there is a gap in it. And we could just quickly mm-hmm. tell you how we would suggest you fill that gap. Cause some of them don't, some of those programs don't have wrecking. Right. Well, let's make sure you're rocking every other week. Of course, they don't have agility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, sure, do this CrossFit program, but can you run here, ruck here, do agility and plyos here? Um, yep. and, that, and they'll do that, and that works great, and that builds that relationship. So now you're talking to that person. They're they're telling you what their workout of the day is, and you can coach them through it and things like that. Um, and then I start to see guys more regularly, uh, usually in their 30s. They've accumulated some wear and tear, and mm-hmm. now they're taking training seriously and want to be very conscientious about their approach because what they used to do isn't working Mm. anymore. And those are the guys that will normally stay on programming for a long time. And then I also work with captains. They're the same thing. They don't have as much time maybe to train and they don't need as much time in the facility training. Um, And they also have developed some wear and tear. but they've learned their lessons. They're definitely going to stick to that program and 
and be very process oriented in that. You mentioned you mentioned you dropped a couple of key things there. One of those was the young guys that are uh, quote unquote program hopping, mm-hmm. and we kind of talked about like, look at, at that age, at that point, like resiliency levels are likely a lot higher. You're not dealing with as many injuries or accumulations of things, and you know testosterone is still pumping, maybe mm-hmm. at the you know at a f- fairly high level. Um, you don't have as much liability in life. There may be not many as, as many things so you can focus on things a little bit more. Maybe there's not family, maybe the job requirements, going back to like the captain versus, you know, a, a younger guy doesn't have as much stuff going on. So they maybe be a little less impatient, but they can also kind of get away with doing so many things. And the program hopping is so popular. Um, and, you know, it's, kind of whatever the flavor of the week is, it, it, it tends to be, and I see this just sort of in general, but I wonder if it's the same way there. And, you know, with that program happening and that getting result, what I see see people re, re referring back to as they get down the line, maybe they do get into their 30s and they're finding like, man, I'm, I'm out of shape. I'm not in the kind of shape I was when I was 23 or these 24-year-olds are starting to run circles around me. So I'm going to go back to quote, end quote, what worked for me before. Mm-hmm. And that was program hopping. So the reality of it is, part of my language, they have no fucking idea what worked for them before. They were just doing stuff. They were just fitnessing, and that fitnessing that fitnessing was was providing them a result. And again, it wasn't altogether bad. But there's nothing to latch on to to what actually worked. Can we talk about that and kind of how you deal with that or what you see? You're chuckling. I oh, get it. Yeah, yeah so. I, this is the daily <laughs> conversation. Um, the the biggest thing I can do as a coach in you know with my unit is to teach. That's really it. My number one goal with these operators isn't to you know change their squat PR. That's really mm-hmm. not what it is. It's to teach them to have a better filter for information. And mm-hmm. to understand the importance of feedback loops so they can draw a line to what worked and what didn't. Because I don't want them wasting time. I don't want them doing extra volume and intensity that's not necessary and is actually detrimental. I don't want them spending three hours in the gym when they could spend 90 minutes in the gym and 90 minutes at home with their family. Right. Um, they just don't, you know, they didn't go to school for this stuff. They have been exposed to a lot of explanation, the whys on the programs. And so, a lot of what we do is try to teach. And that's honestly, that's part of the reason I started Warfighter Health and Performance is because, yeah, my guys have teachers, but a lot of folks in the military don't have teachers. So just trying to spread some of that information out so people can make really good decisions for themselves when they are having to pick their own programming off the internet and determine if it worked or not. So the, the phrase that I hear the most is, I feel like I need mm. X kind of training. And right. so we have to have a conversation about, okay, well, what data did you collect that led you to believe that that works for you? Because I definitely met guys who have a belief that this kind of training works for them. And I have proof that it did not. And but, yes, give me an example. Like what, like, what does that mean? Just give us an example. So of how I you had an proof. operator approach me specifically because he wanted to improve his 5K time. He had heard from his friends that that was something that I could help him do. And he had pulled a program off the internet that he was almost done with, but it wasn't working for him. And these are his words. Okay. And I said, okay, well, you know, let me see what you're doing. And it was a very high intensity program. So 
it was probably 70% high intensity running and 30% zone two, which more commonly in the running world, you would invert that. 70 up to 80% of low intensity running and 20 to 30% of high intensity. And so that was enough information for me to understand like, hey, if you're not responding to all this time in zone four, zone five, then as long as we're checking the sleep box and we're checking the nutrition box, then you've already covered the oxygen uptake piece. You've trained that to death. You need to work on the oxygen delivery side, which is we need to do some zone two work. We need to do some slow running. Training. Yeah, and we need yeah. to flip that ratio to 70% slow running and 30% high intensity running. Um, so he was on board. I gave him the program. It is not different from what his buddies had done that had helped them improve their 5K times. And then I didn't see him for a while because that's nature of the beast. They go off on training trips for weeks at a time. Um, and I saw him maybe six, eight weeks later and I asked him how the running was going. And he said he didn't feel like the program had enough high intensity running to help him. So he stopped it after three weeks. <laughs> so my, my response was, well, three weeks isn't a lot of time, but we definitely, we test every four weeks and we see results. Folks will drop 30 seconds, 40 seconds off their time in four weeks. Okay. That's common. I have right. the data. Um, so did you test at the end of three weeks to see if it was working? No. Okay. Well, what are you doing now? Are you still training for it? Yeah. I went back on the other program. Okay. Like you went back on the program that you told me wasn't working for you. Your times weren't getting better. Um, so, you know, (laughs) I don't know if it worked out for him. Um, but the goal was just to point out you need to test and retest to see if something's working for you. And if it's not, that's really good information for me that that program didn't work because now I know more about your physiology and what you need to work on. I, I love that story for a lot of reasons because the re- the reality of it is he's just a dude, right? And mm-hmm. we work with just normal people, right? They mm-hmm. just happen to do a very extraordinary job or been picked to do a very extraordinary job. It's the same thing in the regular health and fitness business, you know, when you're out there is is trying to get people to wrap their heads around feelings and, Mm -hmm. you know, the reality of things. Uh, I mean, you touched on the, I I was in the endurance game for a long time as an athlete and I trained a lot of, a lot of athletes there and that, that 80, 20 ratio. Um, I want to go back to that being like most of your time should be spent in the low, let's say the aerobic ranges you said, you mentioned, you know, zone two, maybe you're touching into zone three a little bit, but you know, you're staying, you're staying lower and you're really building that aerobic capacity. So you have the engine to then build on in that 20% of time that you're, you're going to spend, uh, working on the higher intensity stuff. So I want to go back to that, that he was like 70, 30. What exactly was he doing in that 70% time? Was he choosing to do 70% like high, more high intensity running or what was also, was there other things that were making up that 70% high intensity stuff? And if so, what was it? Because I have, I have suspicions. I have a hunch. He may have been doing jujitsu too, if that's what you're asking. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. He, all he showed me was a running program. And so as far as I knew from our conversation was my conditioning is what is on this paper. So we're talking, you know, time at VO2 max and threshold in speed work. And that was what he was doing about four days a week with one. Yeah. I see. So I see that happening. I also see it like, well, if you're lifting weights, then you're probably chasing things like the wads. 
Um, you know, and working at those higher intensity levels, you know, whatever that wad was for the day. And when I say that, I mean very specifically closer to like a CrossFit style workout, um, or, or, or whatnot. And so the whole concept of, uh, giving the minimum effective dose in order to get the maximum result and leave yourself time to recover or to then reap the rewards of the benefits of the work that you've done is completely lost. Uh, and the other thing I think, so I think again, you have a high achiever who, at this point, probably in their in their journey, uh, has been conditioned to: if I'm not suffering, I'm not working hard enough. Right. And if I'm if it doesn't hurt, then I can't validate it as being a good workout. Mm-hmm. And so there's that that mindset that kind of kind of sits around there. And then also, there is this something about like it, once you are conditioned to a certain level and you're working in say zone three or closer to zone in you know, maybe dipping into zone four, you're recognizing how like strong you feel. Like you, you can really output a lot of effort when you're really fit there without recognizing that you're not going to be reaping really any fitness benefit out that, out of that. You're getting a workout, right? And you're, you're driving a hormonal response, but in order, you know, maybe, and it's more, more of a, uh, an anabolic response, but at some point it starts to become more of a catabolic response. If you're not, you're not taking care of your body, you're not recovering properly. Again, you, you're, you're, the nutrition isn't there, any of that other stuff. But I think that, that, that there's a little bit of a trap there in that high zone three zone, you know, low zone four type training because guys feel like I've been trapped in there before too. Like, it's like, it feels good. And you, you are really pushing and, you get those endorphins going, right, or whatever. If you're you're chasing the dopamine hit or the the cortisol response at the end, and it, I think the other thing that comes along with that is is as they're as they're pushing, I guess as they're as they're pushing there, they're not recognizing the t- the the toll it's taking. Oh. It's the pounding, mm-hmm. right? It's the it's what's happening at a muscular level, what's happening at a at a tissue level, uh, what's happening at a, a neuromuscular level that is there's there starts to be a real actual like de- point of diminishing returns there, which is what you're saying. Not only are you not getting faster, you are actually setting yourself self up. You're actually taking away from your fitness in the long run if the goal is to improve whatever it was, the 5K time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that, that was kind of my hunch. Like he's probably doing some other like high intensity weightlifting shit, you know, maybe like, you know, or whatever on top of the jujitsu jitsu stuff. Um, I wonder if this is like, I assume this is a bit of a common tale. Uh, yeah. And it, it, so going back, well, I have some other things to say, but I, my question would be like, how do you get your arms or get somebody's arms or you get your arms around somebody to get them to understand this when they're not, you're leading the horse to water, yeah. but you can't make them drink. So um are they, does it take failure? Do they actually have to fail or does it take that 18 year veteran to come back and go, listen, dipshit, she's been telling you what to do and you're not doing it. And that's why you're not, you're not making this. What is, what if anything gets them to turn the corner? I guess is my question. The biggest thing is if they hear it from somebody else, usually on a podcast like this, if they hear another (laughs) coach somewhere and honestly, sometimes they forget that I ever said it. And they'll only remember that they heard it on this podcast somewhere. Or um, if a fellow operator can affirm, well, oh yeah, I do zone two, three days a week and it totally changed things for me. They need to bounce the idea off of somebody else. And it's, it's human nature, right? It, it doesn't make sense that easy running would make you faster at you know your three mile speed. 
So I get that and I try to confirm that for them. Hey, I know it's super counterintuitive. And on the surface, it really doesn't make any sense. But the human body is so complex. Let me walk you through the components of a good running program and what happens at zone two and how that's different from what happens zone four, zone five, and why we need both, but why the ratio is this way or why I suspect for this individual, the ratio should be this way. And even for this individual, I offered to test him with a muscle oxygen monogram so I could show him on a graph and prove it, um, which Mm -hmm. he never took me up on. And I think, you know, the real problem is he's anxious about it. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. He's anxious. He has an emotional attachment or belief to a specific style of training. And there's some anxiety around that. So he is afraid to hand that training off to somebody if it means it's going to change vastly this is what he's done so far it got him here he doesn't understand why it's not working anymore it's probably because maybe he maximized that right. ability he's right his, his oxygen yeah, uptake peaked. is really good so it's no longer his low-hanging fruit his oxygen delivery is his low-hanging fruit and you need to go after the low one and they may play a game where then his oxygen delivery gets really good and then we have to go after his uptake again and that's just the nature of the beast but i wouldn't expect him to understand that because he didn't go to school for that. That is such an important point. I, you know, I have a, a good friend who has spent time in the, in special ops and he's described all the things that these guys have to do sort of on a pie chart and where you spend your time, how you focus things, what you should know. And, you know, so, you know, wherever you're falling into this thing, maybe it's, it's, uh, it's jumping, Right. It's marksmanship. And not only is it marksmanship, it's with a very specific weapon system, right? And then it's some medical and it's diving, right? And, you know, scuba diving and it's uh, navigation and it's, you know, all of these different things that they have to do. And fitness obviously is a big part of this, right? And nutrition is another part of this and sleep and all that stuff. And how much time do you have to practice Right or acquire knowledge on any of this stuff. Right, it, yeah. you have to divide up your day, your career, your training program, all of these things, in a way that that gives you as much information as you can get in order to be safe, be effective, be efficient, all that stuff. So the interesting part about the fitness part of this is that is how he, these guys will go on feelings. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like if you jumped out of an airplane or if you're going on a dive, like fuck your feelings. Like, what does the altimeter say, right? What is, you know, how much air do you have in the tank? You know, like what, you know, how much time do you need to stop to recover before you, you surface or, or go up, you know, from, from, from depth, like those things are, it's all math at the end of the day. Those are all very, very strict measurements and the, and the consequence of not measuring those things is failure. And that failure could be death or you know, death of your buddy next to you or your team member or whatever else. But when it comes to fitness and their own shit, it's like, well, it doesn't feel like the right thing for me. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel hard enough or it doesn't feel like I'm doing the right thing. I find that absolutely fascinating. And, it, and, and I also find that almost everybody that is a high achiever that is really chasing after something that, that takes a lot of um, calculation, consistency, uh, you know, in programming and then also obviously in application, they have to go through that. They have, they, they, they just have to learn the hard lesson, you know, at some point. So, you know, I, I think 
the other key words you said was like teaching or education and, and trying to give these guys as much education. Again, you go back to that pie chart in that sliver of fitness or, or recovery or whatever it is that you, you have to give them. It's a lot of information to retain. So you just got to get them to maybe hold still for a minute, hold it up in front of their face and go, look, dude, I don't expect you to know all this, but let's talk logically because you're right. It doesn't really, like conventional wisdom says, wait, run less or run slower. Don't work as hard mm-hmm. to get better. That makes, you know, boom. You know, that's very a, counterintuitive. Very counterintuitive. That's why my main goal is to teach them about feedback loops. That's that's a much bigger picture for me because I try to get them to commit a certain amount of time. Can, you know, give me four weeks. Let's do this for, can you give me four weeks? We'll retest at the end. And if it's not working, we'll do something else, which is what I was going to do anyway. That's built in to the program, yep. but they don't necessarily right, right. know that because change. they're not familiar yep. with this model of you test, you do a block of training, you retest, and you may have to change your course of training or your nutrition or your sleep or your stress management. Yep. Um, so if I can get them to commit to a few weeks and a test retest, and I try to front load that with, hey, and if it doesn't work on the retest, that's really good information because now I can rule that out. I can rule mm-hmm. out that you need to work on this quality and I have a much better idea of who you are physiologically right now and what we need to work on. So try to invite them into the process and get them to become more process oriented. But understanding we're going to do some science here. I'm not just going to ask you to trust me. Yeah, and it's feedback, not failure. That wasn't three weeks wasted. That was three valuable weeks. Mm-hmm. You got a training effect. We recognize what that is, and now we can platform or leverage that to understand how to go into the next training cycle, the next phase, the next mm-hmm. three or four weeks, whatever it is. Um, I Again, it's not that much different outside of this community. It's just that you're probably dealing with this in a much, much more frequently based on the... Uh, the 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 type A personalities, those high achievers that mm-hmm. that, you, that you're kind of dealing with in terms of how you have to have those conversations. But I also imagine, and but maybe I'm wrong, and I'll ask. Like once they latch on and once they get it, do they revert back to their feelings at any point, or are they just like, nope, I get it now. Like this is this is this is the word. You know, this is what we do now. So now I understand going forward. Or do you have to constantly revisit this stuff with them? It's a mixed bag for sure. I would say <laughs> even with the ones who are the most bought in and I just, if I just tell them you need to do this, they'll do it. They still sometimes revert back and I have mm-hmm. to remind them. But we're at, once we're at that point in the relationship, that's when I can be more straightforward and just be like, yeah. I don't care about your feelings. Your feelings don't matter. Science matters. Let's go do the science. That's right. it. Yeah. But I would never say that to somebody that I'm trying to encourage to work with a coach. Yeah, for that's the first coaching. Time, it's a different conversation. Yeah, that is that's what the professional coach can do versus the the instructor or the newbie or the intern or whatever else. So just to, let's talk about the testing, you know, and, and some of the things you do, but more specifically like around the tech. Um, is there anything you know cool, fancy, uh, unique that you that you use outside of maybe what you've used in the past, or you know, how it's, as technology is advancing, and then also like, are these guys getting more in tune with tech? That's, I think there can be pitfalls like upsides and downsides to this and how they're evaluating and maybe, again, bro fitnessing their own, you know, their own programs or program hopping or, or, or whatever. Like, what can you tell us about so how tech maybe fits into this and what's valuable versus which is like, what's like 
I don't know how valuable this really is. And I'm not sure it's really efficient or effective. The biggest thing is having guys wearing a heart rate monitor that is a chest strap. Mm-hmm. Just learning to collect feedback on heart rate and cadence. That's, you know, the, the basement level. That's the floor where I start guys on any kind of run training. Is like, you got to figure out what your zone two is, what that range looks like from a heart rate level. And if that's not working, we'll go, I'll put a muscle oxygen monitor on them and we'll look from a muscle oxygen level because that can help you really kind of um, figure out what those, the working muscles capable of and what good oxygen delivery, what heart rate range is good oxygen delivery for the working muscle. You may have a broader range in your calculation for heart rate zone mm-hmm. two, but you're not seeing results and they're actually not getting good oxygen delivery. And I found for some guys, we got to drop it down five to 10 beats. So that's been cool. Um, but then they're engaged in that process because once I give them their heart rate range, they just read their watch. Mm. They know see, what cadence they're working on and yeah. they're using a metronome app to get to that cadence. And so that's something that we can build together. And since mostly I'm training them remotely, they're usually not in the facility when they're doing the majority of their training. Then that works out really well. So is it fair to say that what, you, what you're doing is spending quite a bit of time teaching them how to slow down? Yes. That's the, I always joke that that's the majority of my job is getting them to do less. Yeah, again, the concept of minimum effective dose to get mm-hmm. the, the maximum result. And I, again, I, feel, I find that fascinating. And, but I, I don't think mo- most people would be surprised by that that's your challenge with them, but that that's the focus for the training to help these guys. And we've been, we've been talking a lot about like the 5k thing came up, like the, the running stuff, but we'll, let's switch it over to like the strength training component, because, you know, you had mentioned there were people coming at it from all different angles. Like, you know, they come from really strong strength, you know, power and strength backgrounds. Other guys come from like very strong endurance backgrounds and, and it all works. It's all important. All of it matters, but, and it all works until it kind of doesn't right. Mm-hmm. Until there's a, until you find out like this is, you know, there's a, there's a point of diminishing returns on how strong and big you get, mm-hmm. right. Or how big and powerful you get. Can you talk about like, what, what does the programming sort of look like in general? And I you work with individuals, but in general, because it's so, so like, like you've already said, like the 80, 20 principle or 20, 80 more mm-hmm. specifically, can you talk about like the the weight training strength to power type stuff that may be happening more in the weight room, strength and conditioning room, and and how these guys approach it um, versus how they maybe should be approaching it or how you're working with them to approach it better? So typically, because these guys are extreme outliers and are successful at the majority of the things that they do, they, they tend to make these big swings. So they may be really fast runners coming into the teams and then they'll totally shift gears and decide that they're going to do a powerlifting program because they want to get as strong as possible. And some of them stop running altogether. So they might gain, you know, 15, 20 pounds of muscle mass and honestly some bad movement habits, or maybe they already have the bad movement habits, but because they're pushing so heavy all the time. And then they'll swing back and want to do an ultra marathon the next six months or the next year. What is that Um, about? I think just chasing after really hard things. They're really good at doing really hard things and mm. wanting to push themselves and see what they can achieve. But unfortunately, the mission is to be a jack of all trades. So that's my job is to program mm. for you so that you're a little bit good at both elite at none. Um, so we've collected a lot of testing data and I just present guys, hey, the norms of your population for strength, for conditioning, for 
change of direction is this. And so I want you to get to that. And if across the board at all those things, you're hitting the median, then we can start chasing something to bump up above that median. But if you're really low on something and really high on something else, and I don't care about that thing that you're high at, let's get worse at that. Take some time away from that and get better at the other thing. Or if we can hold that value, we'll hold that value. It just kind of comes down to how much time is available or how offset they were. Because if they're, I get really, really muscular guys who want to screen for our tier one unit, which is a lot of endurance testing. And so, boy, do we have to swing. It's like, just, you're going to lose 15 pounds of muscle if you go with it. If you really want to do this, we have to drop that muscle so that you can run and do calisthenics. Okay. So, that brings up a whole other set of questions. So, you mentioned like the doing hard things. I sort of get that. Uh, I also heard you say like, well, let's do a little less of this. So, because you've gotten really good at that, which is likely a byproduct of the program hopping and kind of always going back to what they're really good at. So in this case, it's, you know, the hypertrophy, you know, and strength programming maybe because he's the big muscular guy who looks good. And that's being validated by all his buddies, you know, inside and outside of whatever, you know, teams he happens to be working with or for. Like, dude, you're jacked, you're huge. So that just validates, oh yeah, it's working. I'm doing the right thing, Mm -hmm. right? And then coming... Then coming back to like, well, we might have to peel off 10 to 15 pounds of all this work that you put in mm-hmm. to get you better at this thing. So before I ask you about that and how tough and challenging that might be, I want to touch on the, the whole concept of body dysmorphia in this community. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I don't think it's talked about a lot. And I think that has a lot to do with the program hopping. And I've heard some wild shit with regard to what some of these, these, these individuals will do with their nutrition and their, uh, and their, their, their fitness program, and let's put it that way, whether it's hopping or it's very specific and program or uh, periodized or whatever, to attain some type of aesthetic result as a quote-unquote quote athlete. Um, and my challenge with that is, is like, this is what, you know, we watched this happen in the CrossFit world uh, where all of a sudden for a while there, like aesthetics was everything when you showed up to the games. And people worked really hard to come in. Like if you didn't come in absolutely shredded because the photographers were there, it was like social media was just blowing up all this stuff. Like that's how you got attention. That's how you got followers. That's how you maybe got sponsors and and whatever else. But we actually watched was the deterioration of the athlete because of the the complete disconnect between your six pack has zero to do with your performance or the quality of what it is that you're outputting. So coming back to like that dysmorphia, you know, body dysmorphia with, with guys in this group, I understand it's probably a very challenging environment, you know, who looks better, who's performing better. And then that mismatch of like, well, he's performing really well and he looks like this. So I should look like that. So I got to pro- jump to this program that he's doing or has been doing and this wild nutrition, I don't know, time restricted feeding, full carnivore, let's go keto, you know, whatever else. Can you talk about that dynamic and the challenges that they're faced with and that you're faced with as a coach? Yeah, I mean, like you've been saying, they're they're human beings. It's not different, you know, in in general population in terms of you're getting saturated with with information of whatever the latest nutrition trend is, whatever the latest exercise trend is. 
And it's usually too extreme to be helpful for a large group of people anyway. And it's never anything that's geared towards what special operators have to do. So, you know, body dysmorphia is definitely rampant. I think it's rampant everywhere. Uh, I don't think we're, we're different in our population, but it is tough because when guys have achieved that aesthetic, but they're under fueling and there are guys right. that maybe haven't achieved the aesthetics that they want. And they're also under fueling and they both need to eat more. So you're right. looking at somebody who thinks they need to eat less because they want to get that six pack, but they actually need to eat more to get closer to that six pack. That's another counterintuitive concept that if you're under fueling, your body's going to hold on to a little more fat or in some cases in some people this happens and we increase their fueling we increase their carbohydrates so they actually get leaner that's a tough sell and then guys that are performing well that are lean and strong and do have a six-pack but if they want to perform better at something that's more endurance based we got to get your calories up and we can't worry so much about the six-pack we just have to make sure that you're balancing your fueling um, it, that's a bigger problem for the dietitian, but I also will tell guys, if you don't eat more, I have to take training away or you're not going to get the training result. Yep. Because at that point we, we've plateaued and that's why we're going in to see the dietitian. Step one, I want everybody to see the dietitian. They don't always do it right away, but then if they plateau on their training and I say, I'm not going to adjust your training until you meet with the dietitian because it sounds like a fueling problem, not a programming yep. problem. Yep. And if, if you prove me wrong and it's not a fueling problem, it's not a sleep problem, then I'll absolutely run further tests and change your programming as needed. But you got to check this box first. And if they don't up their calories, then I have to take training away. And sometimes it's just life. Sometimes they really can't figure out how to get more calories in. Maybe they've got a bunch of kids at home, a very busy schedule, it, habits. It's the nature of the beast, in which case, sure, we'll cut a day of training off and you'll get faster, you'll get stronger. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's got to balance out. Yeah, the whole metabolic adaptation concept is tough for, for folks to wrap their head around. Yeah, I, you got to eat more to lose body fat or lose weight even. You know, like it's a, maybe not weight, but lose body fat and lean up to, you know, to perform well. We talk about that a lot on the show otherwise, and it's a constant conversation. We're having it all the time. So it's no surprise to me that you guys, are, that you're having it with, with, uh, with folks in, in that realm. I just like the consequence is so much higher. You know, when you think about the, the demands of the job and the life that exists there and the not making the connection piece with like, okay, well, if you're undernourished, you're, you're underfed, then you're undernourished, period. End of story. Like, and, if you're undernourished and you think that your body, number one, is going to function well, like at a cellular level, then that's foolish. And if that's not working right, if you think you're going to function optimally out in the, you know, in the shoot house, uh, in the water, uh, fast roping out of a helicopter, uh, diving, skydiving, whatever the hell, like that's also foolish. And so, you know, that, having to lead the horse to water again to make them drink, to have the evaluation, to, to be told, you're doing it wrong, dude. Like, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. I get where that high achiever mindset can can really be tough. And I don't know, again, going back to the journey, if there's any way, other way for somebody to arrive on the other end of that except to have gone, gone through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're so fortunate that they have teams like you to work with their teams in order to, to kind of to, to overcome this stuff. 
I wonder, you know, sort of some of the other things that that we're doing, like, and just in terms of like the the high performers that do do everything, you know, that you say, you know, and they're like, coach, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And they, and they do do that. Does that open up the gates for you and your team, but more specifically you to, to try new things, to be able to kind of push the envelope, to introduce new things to the entire program, maybe meet as, you know, um, a collective, uh, you know, team within SOCOM to, to pass this down to other teams. Is there any like, is there any of that sharing of best practices like at a public level, you know, national level or whatever? And how has that worked out? And if so, like if you are doing that, what what have been some of the biggest learning experiences that you've had from doing that, say in the last, you know, one to two years? A lot of it is me messaging or calling other people and saying, hey, I'm stuck here. What are you doing? What would you mm-hmm. do here in this situation? And then vice versa. And, you know, luckily being there 10 years, I've been able to collect data, which is not easy when the guys all have different schedules. Or I don't know when they're coming in to train. The programs are written knowing that they're going to miss days. They're going to miss weeks. And I don't know what those days and weeks are because I can't keep up with everyone's schedules. And that's fine. I write them mm-hmm. that way on purpose. Um, but I've been able to collect data on groups of guys who participate in training. Usually the selection prep guys participate in training for a long time, show up for testing dates or do the testing remotely. And that's what makes me a better coach. I'm just, they're helping me weed out modalities that aren't really working here and put together a better program and to really hone a better program. And then I'm able to share that with other groups or they're able to share that with me. Um, I would say the biggest thing is kind of like when I was coaching divers for the first time and there's no roadmap to that is calisthenics. Like collegiate athletes don't have to compete at calisthenics, but right. if you're going through selection, you do. Um, so having to learn how to take uh, you know, 90 reps to 105 reps when 90 reps is already pretty dang That's high. a lot. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot of reps, Se- but we still need seems to like too many. needle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then maybe in their heads, they think they can get 130 and I'm like, nobody gets 130. It's okay. (laughs) Like the average is this, we're going to go for just above average. Um, so learning how to take the same principle we use in running of, do you need oxygen delivery? Do you need oxygen utilization? Or do you need to work on your respiration and apply that to push-ups and sit-ups? And it's, um, I mentioned before that I use a muscle oxygen monitor, which is smaller than a post-it note. And you stick it on your main working muscle, which is usually your quad when you're running and trying to adapt that into, okay, how can I use this to help this person get off this plateau on their pushups? And not a lot of people are doing that. Um, so having to call the exercise physiologist that invented the device in the first place and ask them what they would do. Um, or talking to other coaches that have been training folks for selection prep and have been working on the same thing and just bouncing ideas. So um, a big thing that I have learned is just like in running, some folks need to work on oxygen delivery. Some folks need to work on oxygen utilization. Some folks need to work on respiration. So respiration, that's like those positional breathing drills that I was talking about, blowing up a balloon. That's going to improve your diaphragm function, your diaphragm strength, and your ribcage mobility so that you can move your shoulders smoothly. Um, oxygen utilization is when we're going to do hard stuff. We're going to push to an RPE 7, 8, even 9, mm-hmm. um, and then take long breaks. And oxygen utilization, we have two short sets with breaks in between. 
sometimes the sets are so easy, you, you really wouldn't think or you wouldn't feel like you're going to get better this way. But if that's what the guy needed, he's going to get right. better. And if I try to take him to you know three sets to RPE 8, that's not going to do anything for him but wear him out. Yeah, uh, so yeah, so glad you brought that up. Like that's a, that's a thing that I sh- I'm challenged by when we see people just beating beating themselves up or beating their clients up or their their athletes up is is not taking into account you know how important the skills are first before you start doing any of that type of you know focused training. You mentioned just breathing skills. Like if it, if if your body depends on taking oxygen in first, mm-hmm. right? Like getting actually getting it into the body. Right. And then getting rid of the waste product at the same time. Like, if you don't have that skill, you can be pushing all day long, monitoring your heart rate and doing all this stuff. And it's, it's fairly futile and you're missing again the foundational stuff. I mean, it's like, if you don't have ammo in your firearm, what's the point? You know, kind of thing. Um, that might, may or may not be a good analogy, but I think it is in the sense that, you know, people are training at these high intensity levels. You already mentioned the inverse of the 80 20 rule. Right, so if you're spending eighty percent of your time training at this high intensity, and you lack the skill in order to uh, perform that 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 uh, that activity really well, anyways, up to and including breathing, which yeah is important, you know, for human physiology, like you you're you're not going to be the best athlete that you can. And now, like we're talking again, I've used this term in just in general, we're talking fitnessing or fitness testing. Now you get out into you know maybe in the job role or whatever where you start start adding all kinds of other things, additional equipment you know that's hanging off of you, stress, all kinds of ungodly stuff that I can't even fathom because I've never been there and I never will. You know, start adding that on. If you're still, if you still can't perform the basic skill and you start piling all of these extra variables on, like where does that really leave you in the end? Despite whether or not you passed the test or not. So the question in this, in this is, what are some of the skills that you're able, and you mentioned this like breathing, this breathing technique, anything else you're working on around there that you can give somebody that practically walk away where they may not be doing this in the gym, right? They may not be going because they're on the road somewhere, you know, or they're, you're, you're training remotely and they're not going to go into the gym, put their legs up, you know, on a table. So they're, you know, basically um, upside down, breathing through a balloon and practicing these breathing things. What, what other things? Or 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 uh, practices can you give them to help them with this stuff? Especially for the listeners that are listening, they're like, I don't know what she's talking about. Breathing through a balloon sounds weird to me. But what 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 are some of the things that you could give them practically to work on? Well, specifically with calisthenics, sometimes it's as simple as not holding your breath, just finding your rhythm <laughs> to your breathing. There's been plenty of guys mm-hmm. where I'm working with them remotely. They've hit this plateau. We've checked what seems like all the boxes and I'm thinking we've hit a wall and then they show up in person for the first time. I'm like, okay, let me see you do push-ups, and they're holding their breath and doing 20 reps. I'm like, well, all right, there's our problem. Mm-hmm. You have no oxygen that you can, can use to convert fuel for your muscle. Right. So you're, you're just not fueled. Like I said, your gun has no ammo. Um, mm-hmm. So we just work on finding a rhythm to your breathing and breathing through your nose as long as it's comfortable. And then the same thing is true with running. Let's breathe through your nose as long as it's comfortable and that's going to keep your heart rate down. It's such a simple concept, right? But I think it gets so lost and, you know, we're worried about the reps, 
the sets, the clock, the heart rate monitor, the all the other things, but there's these basic things. And we can take this all the way back to the very first, really one of the very first questions I asked you specific to the training, and that was the gap or your biggest like, whoa, and that was movement quality mm-hmm. and lack thereof. And breathing is movement, right? And mm-hmm. And, and movement is dependent on breathing, you know, properly. And I, I get, people, I think, listen to that stuff or they see it or they may hear coaches talking about it and they laugh about it. Like they, it's a joke to them. Like they don't, because they don't fully understand it. And then it's coaches like you that are constantly trying to, you know, whether it's beating them over the head with it or trying to, you know, nurture them with some, a little information. So finally they get it and start listening. Uh, these are, these are like, these are what pro athletes are working on. Right. Like it's not like it's not by the time they get to this this place, it's generally not fitness that's gonna keep you from it's not the fitness that's gonna keep you from being selected. Right. It's gonna be Mm -hmm. something else. Mm -hmm. However, within the fitness, like your ability to understand and do the fitness well and not just suffer through it to pass the test is probably the the thing. I don't know. What do you have to say about that and kind of your experience? Well, breathing is a form of stress management. So if you don't have tools to control your heart rate in a workout, then you didn't ha- you don't have tools that you've practiced and applied to a much more serious, stressful evolution that these guys could possibly be doing. So yeah, I'm talking about breathing in terms of push-ups and running, but our psychs are talking about it as well in terms of stress mm-hmm. management. And if any coaches out there, you know, are listening and think, oh, we all know how to breathe, it's fine. Okay, well, try doing a cyber right. competition. Right. And, and we should talk about that. About your breathing at all. Right. We should talk about that. So, but before we get there, you just mentioned two very important things. One was the sleep, or excuse me, the stress management, and, you know, how the, sorry, it crosses, the breathing crosses over from the fitness, right, or lack thereof, into the stress management piece, and how those are two are very intertwined. Another piece I would add to that would be like the sleep piece. Just see how good quality your sleep is if you can't breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, try it. Like that, That I don't care. Conventional wisdom will tell you if you can't breathe well, you're not going to sleep well, right? And how important those things are in all the things that you do. And probably the most two overlooked things are sleep management and stress mitigation. Mm-hmm. If you're not handling those things, then, you know, you're all the other things, the downstream effects from a hormonal perspective, from a recovery perspective, from a, the list goes on and on and on, uh, are, are, the the, the impacts are are vast. And so again, like just without beating the dead horse here, that breathing stuff, you know, and just learning how to do it properly, so important. And it can have such an impact on so many other things. But you just mentioned a practical application of the breathing outside of doing a push-up or a sit-up. That's the fitnessing part, right? Or the exercise testing part for being very specific. You just mentioned like, okay, so like we're moving into things like uh, precision precision shooting. So you mentioned like sniper competitions and, and, uh, uh, and, and the breathing components. You almost said that like you may have had some experience with this. So I'm curious, what can you tell us? Like what have you... Where did that come from? So I honestly didn't know that sniper competitions were a thing that our guys could participate in um, mm-hmm. while they were active duty. So I learned through them that working on breathing and working on zone two running carried over 
to greater success at these sniper competitions that I didn't know existed. Well, that I makes had, perfect sense. Yeah. You just had nobody had ever said that to you before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah once right. I explained, I was like, okay, what, this, what are you doing with the sniper competition? Yeah, of course, yeah. that makes sense. I actually have a few more right. things that might help you out. You try them. You tell me. Um, yeah, so these guys had gone through the selection prep process. So they stayed on a program for an extended period of time, um, probably about th- three to six months. And okay. this is the first time they'd done that much zone two work and heard about the importance of it. We did positional breathing drills. We talked about how to breathe when you run and in at each heart rate zone. Um, and this, they worked with the Sykes and did a lot of stress management and incorporated the breathing there as well as many other techniques. And then they went off afterwards and did these sniper competitions and we're like, Hey, we smoked everybody on the physical stuff. It, it was not hard for us to, you know, run three miles with all of our gear and then get our heart rates pretty fast and then get our heart rates down pretty quickly, just using a few things from the previous program. So then I started putting together things more specifically. Okay, well, if you have another competition, let's start considering these other things and practicing these other specifics um, to the point where I eventually just wrote a sniper prep program. Yeah. To put it together for them because they're going to keep doing these competitions. Um, but yeah, once they explained to me the steps and the things that they have to do, it's like, okay, right. well, they were smart enough to know, like, you know, we're going to run pretty hard until we get close to where, you know, the location we're going to have to shoot or perform other physical activities and then shoot. And we're going to start slowing down towards the end. So they had a pacing strategy that they came up with. They're using their nasal breathing and their cadence to make sure that they're really efficient and they're not wasting any energy. And they knew that doing longer exhales increases parasympathetic tone, which helps you bring your heart rate down. So longer exhales and inhales. And then we added the component of positional breathing. Hey, can you get into quadruped? So can you get on your hands and knees for a little bit? or even elbows and knees, because sometimes being inverted with your hips above your head can bring your heart rate down even faster. Because Quadruped is a faster way to get your heart rate down. Your diaphragm's in a better position to move up and down, which is going to be what increases that parasympathetic tone. You're not having to manage gravity, so you're breathing better. Your nervous system is becoming more relaxed. You're not using as much muscle exertion to manage gravity. Your heart rate's going to come down faster, and then they can go into prone and shoot but if they went straight to prone their diaphragm's not going to be in a good position it might be hard to get their heart rate down if they stayed standing it might take them another minute or so to get their heart rate down so we just started incorporating little tricks like that into their training and then making sure that they had really low resting heart rates and really good aerobic capacity so that the floor and their ceiling were really far apart they had a lot of space to work in that in between so we're probably doing zone two, three or four days a week and just watching their resting heart rate come down. It's it's really simple stuff. I just had to learn that, oh, this is the thing. Okay, well, we can apply these things just like we did in the gym. We can apply these things to specifically what you're working on tactically. I, it's fascinating uh, because, and I think it fascinating in that it is that simple but how important it is. I mean, anybody listening, I know people are listening to the show, like ears just lit up and probably even some eyebrows went up while listening 
but obviously those that are watching and listening to what you just said, because after hearing you walk through that, like everybody out there is just going, well, duh. Like that makes perfect sense. Same as it made to you as the coach going, well, what's my problem set? What is the goal? Like, and what are the things that I have to do here within there in order to perform at the highest level? And it makes perfect sense. So right now, you know, in the world, precision shooting, precision rifle is just, it's kind of going like gangbusters. It's very popular. And, you know, there's all kinds of competitions. I mean, at any weekend and, you know, in, in a lot of major places, you can find a, a competition and people are spending a lot Let's just, I'm not even, gonna, that isn't even, that's such an understatement, a ridiculous amount of money on gear, right? And mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, optics, uh, guns, ammo, you name it, anything they can do to get an edge and they're not, they're not fit. They're not in shape. And some of them are just not in shape at all, right? Some of them, you know, they can, uh, because they're such good shooters or they're good at, uh, at fixing the, or excuse me, understanding and solving the problem, you know, with regard to range, windage, all, all the things that go into precision shooting, they can get away with having poor fitness. Whereas in, you know, and they can beat the guy that has great fitness, but not fitness for this, right? Not fitness for this. They can go to the CrossFit gym and wad the hell out of everybody and they wind up on the leaderboard every day, but they don't, they, they, they don't have the fitness for this and, or maybe they're not a great shooter or maybe they have great fitness or a mediocre shooter, but they have zero endurance. Like they just, they don't, they don't have the ability to recover. Uh, again, I'm sort of kind of droning on here and, and, and going down the path, but what you just said there makes so much sense. And it's, it's stuff that everybody can practice. Um, they, they just have to put the time into it, but it's the last thing on there. Like, I got to get my lifts in. If I don't bench press today, then I'm a loser. If I don't squat, you know, three times a week, then I'm a loser. You know, and if I'm not running a 5K in, you know, whatever my, 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 um, my, my part times are, or my, excuse me, my, um, my average, my typical average rate is, then I'm a loser. But they're not actually getting anything out of that that benefits them in the performance end of things outside of the gym, which is often, I guess, uh, graded by how much weight is on the bar, how fast that I complete that workout, uh, how fast that I run, uh, so on, so forth. Quite, it's quite frankly, it's really boring. It gets boring if you don't get to explore and open up that stuff. So I'm, I'm rambling. Uh, I say all that to say, like, I think it's fascinating. And, you know, like you, you put together like a sniper, you said you like, you put together a sniper program, sniper competition program for that. Like, how does that, that relate? Can people get this? Like, can they get this from you somehow or like, can they see it somewhere? Yeah, um, I just put it online actually. So if you're interested in checking it out, I put up a 12-week program on my website. It's warfighterhp.com as in warfighter health and performance. So just kind of an overview of this, like you were mentioning some of these guys, these guys were coming out of selection process where they were three to six months and it already had a really good base program, Mm -hmm. consistent program over there that you were able to augment with some of this other stuff, when people see just from an overview perspective, what will they see there? Will it be like a three-month periodized type deal? Like what mm-hmm. could they expect? Yeah. Um, so it, it's very similar to what I program for my active duty guys in terms of you are going to do change of direction. You are going to jump, sprint, cut, throw. We're going to do all those things. You're going to be athletic. Um, we're also going to do aerobic capacity work. We're going to do strength work. You're going to do a squat. You're going to hinge. You're going to press. You're going to pull. You're going to do weighted pull-ups. You're going to do all these things. 
I, I wrote it assuming that you're in the military and mm-hmm. you need these things for your job. But also mm-hmm. these are all the things that if you're just general population and you want to be healthy and athletic, you want to keep all of these things in your program. So it's 12 months, progressive power, speed, conditioning, but also with the breathing drills. I'm going to introduce you to the breathing drills on a low level. There's videos of everything. I'm going to explain the why behind each thing and give you some ideas of how to utilize it in your shooting. Uh, I, I mean, I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm all over this. Uh, like I, I, I love nerding out on, on programming and just kind of see how people's brains work and, and putting it together. But sounds like a high level of value. And I say that not just because it's specific to a, to, to a community or a set of people that do a specific thing, but I mean, you just mentioned kind of all the things that go into there, right? The strength, the power, the endurance, the sprinting, the changing of direction, the agility, speed, quickness, all that stuff. That is a lot to fit into a program. I know because, you know, we, that's what we do here too. We try to put it in there. Uh, we, we're currently actually writing a program ourselves that kind of, you know, incorporates all this stuff for the person that's already got a lot of things to do. Um, and so to try and do that from your by yourself and and I'm going to say, I think it's an opportunity to say this, to just to buy it from the guy who's the precision shooter who doesn't have a background in any performance training. He's just giving you what he's done and what's been, what's worked for him, you know, and paying, I don't, whatever, whatever he charges you for it to do that and say, well, I want to shoot like that guy and he's doing really well. So I'm going to buy his stuff without a background of knowledge. I also find that to be an interesting part of this, um, of this community with regard to like people looking at resumes um, and you know, from the outside, like surface level, looking in and making a lot of assumptions and trying to finish the story. Maybe that's the way to look at it. Like, well, he's doing this and he's saying this, so it must make sense that you know, if I do it this way, I'm going to get there. But there are so many miss- missing pieces in there that haven't been filled in. And when you buy a program like what you're talking about, you've given them all the details. The, mm-hmm. the challenge, I think, for a lot of people is actually following the detail from start to finish and actually doing the stuff and not going with what feels good, right? Versus what we know what we know works, mm-hmm. and then obviously stopping and testing along the way. But I think it's I think it's super cool, and I think it's super practical for a lot of people out there that aren't in the military. But to your point, as a disclaimer, you assumed the person doing this is in the military. So if you're the dude that sits behind the desk for five days a week and then is the weekend warrior on the PRS range or whatever and is traveling to the, to the match and thinking that this might be the best place for you to start? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, what, what would you suggest? It's very scalable. Uh, you'll probably get tired of reading my notes in there, but I wanted to make it accessible to a lot of people. I never want to assume like running mileage. I don't want to assume everybody's running 20 miles a week. Because if right. I do that and you're running six miles a week, you're going to get shin splints. So I put a lot of ranges in there and um, there's notes in there to help you make decisions. I don't tell anybody what type of squat to do. I offer squat variations and a little bit of information on how to choose which one is going to serve you best. And that's going to be the one you can do with the best movement quality, no pain, and you can load. So some people will buy this program and do back squats. Some people are going to be doing goblet squats. And if you choose goblet squats, I'm giving you a different rep range than if you're doing back squats to make sure that you're getting an appropriate load. So it's very malleable to different levels. Um, the only thing I would say is if you haven't been sprinting, then don't start off 
full speed, take about four weeks to work up to full speed. But that said, I keep the sprints really short. So nobody pops a hammy, even if they send it on week one. <laughs> I think uh, it's, it's interesting with the, the, the walking in, walking into the program. Again, I sort of talked about like how people get into programming. They buy from a person that looks like they know what they're doing. It sounds like they know what they're doing, but there's just not a lot of foundation, you know, or, or, or background under, under it. And part of what I see in a lot of those programs is whether it's a SWAT guy telling, you know, selling fitness program to other SWAT guys or, you know, the ex, I don't know, Navy SEAL who's selling the Navy SEAL program to probably not even selling it to Navy SEALs. He's selling it to people that want to be Navy SEALs. And I don't mean that like they're going through selection. I mean, they're, you know, whatever. They've got some fantasy um, is that they're not built with any flexibility. And, you know, in terms of who the individual is that may be doing the program, it's, this is the exercise. Uh, and, you know, that you get a template and that's what it is. And it's like here, it's, you know, these exercises, this many reps, this many sets, this is how you, maybe there's a deload programmed in there five weeks in or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you go back to these basic movement patterns or whatever, but, or, or these basic exercises that have already been lined out for you, but it doesn't actually teach you anything. And it doesn't give you the flexibility to do the things that are the right things for you in order to get the training effect that we're looking at. Is the goal to do a squat or is the, the goal to do a squat well in a way that's progressive so, and based and, and centered in the, the, the concept of individuality, mm-hmm. progressive overload, and specificity of what we're trying to get out of it at the end of the day? And I think that's where the detail gets lost in a lot of these kind of generic programs. Um, yeah, I don't believe in jamming square pegs into round holes. Um, right. It just, it doesn't work. So with my population, this is how I write the programs. It says squat variation. You can pull a drop down menu and choose which one. I'll advise you in the notes. Or if I do a movement assessment with them in person, then I tell them specifically which squat I want them working on and which one they can progress towards if they hit a certain wicket. Um, and I use auto-regulation on everything. So there are no percentages. I'm going to tell you how many reps to leave in reserve. So if you're having a great day, you're going to be able to move more weight. If you're fatigued that day, you're going to move a little less weight, but we're still going to hit the goal intensity so that you see results without overdoing it. Sorry. On the runs, there is a rep range. I'm going to have you doing you know, between 8 and 14 sets of 200 meter in and out. And I'm going to help you calculate a pace. And then if you have to sprint any of those reps, you're done. So it will work for a range of fitness levels. I'm not going to force anybody too far to where they might get hurt or they've just burned too many calories that day, damaged too much Mm -hmm. tissue that day so that they won't be able to achieve what's on the plan for the next day. I mean, that's fitness programming in general, right? Whether it's inside this program or outside of it. I mean, you just mentioned like, this is how I program for my athletes regardless, right? This is, or my, my, my people, this is what it is. Referring to them as, just referring to them as athletes. Uh, again, the flexibility uh, and understanding what all the things that you just said mean, right? So mm-hmm. it's, you know, you can't just say, um, you know, you can't just say uh, RPE and expect that somebody understands what that means, right? Like it, like, what does that mean? How does that vary against reps in reserve, right? Like, what are the differences there? Like, how do you use that? For me, like, one's real-time and one's kind of evaluated after. And you have to understand what, 
how that how that benefits you uh, or doesn't benefit you just in in your training program. But the, the 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 I guess a question I have for you because you are you are directly involved in this, right? This is for the, so for people that are going through selection specifically in SOCOM or whatever, and 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 it may may vary from one you know branch or unit or particular team to another. But in your experience, and you've had quite a bit of it at 10 years, outside of understanding what this number might mean specific to the programming that you give them or don't give them to achieve a specific fitness result, does anybody out there besides the particular athlete or another athlete that might be standing next to him, does does anybody give two shits about how much you can barbell back squat? If we're training for selection, we're front squatting. Our goal is running, it's moving forward through space, and I need to make sure. In a population where guys tend to be stuck in a very arched position, that nobody gets injured. So I need to work on getting them out of that arch position so that their diaphragm can move better, so that they can breathe better, and front squatting and goblet squatting is a great tool to do that. So if our goal is selection, and part of that, a big part of that selection is running, then the majority of them are going to be front squatting, if not all of them. And with that, the follow-up question is, is there any qualification for how much you have to front squat in order to be selected? Nope. There, we have a vertical <laughs> jump goal, and we will lift accordingly to achieve that vertical jump goal. So I could go down the list of things. Does anybody give a shit about how much you can bench press? Should you even be doing that is the question. You you could probably better answer that. But we go down this list of exercises. People put value in these particular exercises, mm-hmm. right? And the reality of it is, is, is there really any value in it in the end? Oh, there's a value in movement patterns, right? Mm-hmm. And overloading the, a, a very good movement pattern, right? Over time and progressively and doing all the right things. But the bottom line is nobody gives a shit how much you can back squat or quite frankly, how much you can, you can front squat, in my opinion, if, if you can't apply that in the things that actually do matter. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, people are like, you know, it's like, well, the, there's these measurements or these values that people put so much emphasis on. And at the end of the day, like, I mean, you just went back to like, you know, probably not back square with most people. Why? Because they're not in a really great position to be able to do that. They need more help. What's the risk versus reward? Like if you're in kid all day running around with a helmet st- strapped to your head with nods and, you know, I don't know, whatever else has got you got strapped to you and, and everything else, like you're probably not in a, your, your shoulders are probably a bit jacked. Your upper body posture is probably not awesome. So how do we, number one, improve what we're trying to improve through a front squat, but also, you know, from a strength conditioning or strength perspective or power uh, perspective, when we're talking about like hips, knees, and ankles type type stuff. But how do we also get improvement in other areas without further taking you down, you know, into a position where you're going to get a point of diminishing returns? Uh, I just thought I'd ask because, you know, it's a, it's an exercise that we see being, I think, being overemphasized alongside the deadlift. Not that these aren't valuable exercises. I'm not saying that for anybody out there, but like, how does it, what's the application of this down the road? And does it really matter? I think what, you've made the point. I'm just going to reemphasize it. It's how well you do those movements that dictate, you know, how much value I think you can ultimately get out of them. If there's anything that like you, for people that are, for folks that are like, dreaming of or have aspirations of going through, getting through the initial, you know, 
FS programs or, you know, BUDS programs, or I don't know what they, what the program's called for, um, for the Air Force and, and the things that they do there. There's a lot of different ones out there. I think Marsoc's now kind of going away. They're doing different stuff. I don't know. But if you could give anybody advice that is going into those programs to set them up for success, like some general advice, um, what would it be? Starting out, make sure you move really well because that can help keep you healthy before you still build volume on. And you're going to have to build volume. You're going to have to build a lot of volume. But if you build volume on poor movement, then you're probably going to hit the end of your rope sooner than later. And that's what happens to a lot of people. If you're greedy enough to make it through one of these selections, which that's the seems to be the number one thing that matters is how greedy you are. Plenty of division one athletes don't make it through. Um, I know guys that didn't even know how to swim before they went through buds and then they become operators and athletic ones at that. Um, so if you're gritty enough, you still will want the movement quality piece before you build the volume piece because you don't want injury to take mm. you out at that point. But if you skip that step, then you might get injured in training or you might be more susceptible to injury and lay a good foundation of zone two before you layer on all the high intensity running that you're going to have to layer on or rucking because that's just going to give you a higher ceiling. I, it's really simple advice, like from a contextual perspective, like it's super simple, but wrapping your head around that, uh, and which would mean from a lot of folks, uh, if they're at that point in life where they're actually considering this, or it could be a candidate for that, it often means dialing things back. Um, and I think that might be a really tough thing for people to even think about or consider, you know, because they feel like there's a tight timeline here or, um, that, you know, they're on the clock. And if they don't, if they're not doing something, if, it, if they're not in by 20 years old, then they've wasted time or whatever else can. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're shaking your head. Can you, can you speak to that? Can you kind of give some perspective there? Yeah. So what I've been hearing, so I do tier one selection. That's a little bit different because the guys already have this base level of fitness. They're mm -hmm. gritty as hell. That's not necessarily what we're working on. Um, but for all of the successful folks that I know that are helping folks through these initial selections, they're asking for one to two years to prepare properly. And that's so you can do it smartly and incrementally. And if you think about your fitness preparation, like a pyramid, the wider your base, the higher you're going to be able to peak at the top. So those are the folks that are getting auto qualifying times on everything and are also physically resilient because they have been able to train with a lot of volume to prepare for their selection, but it's because they've been at it for one to two years. So here's the, there's the next question then, uh, I guess, because you're, you're, you're getting them sort of near the top of the pyramid and your job is to get them better maybe, or maybe it's almost at the top of the pyramid. It's trying to get them better and squeeze out, you know, the last, bits that you can and maintain that. So you already have the base underneath there. Let's, let's make sure you're staying at the tip of the pyramid or tip of the spear, as they say. Are there any programs out there, you know, that you've seen people adopt or, or places to, for them to go? Because you're inside that process right now, like mm -hmm. way at a different level. But for the newbie or the person that, you know, is, is it, you know, a self-motivated, uh, you know, like self-guided stuff or is looking to maybe join a program, 
Is anybody you've worked with in the past, anybody out there that you see doing a really good job with this right now that you can recommend for folks uh, to sh- and share the wealth here? Yeah. So Building the Elite is the best resource that I've come across for any of this. And they are coaches who I am constantly bouncing ideas off of back and forth. Um, so we're able to share our experiences and data back and forth. And they have a really high success rate. I think they they have like a 90% success rate for folks who they coach one-on-one. And they also just recently dropped a training app. So even if you can't do the one-on-one coaching, which is mm-hmm. going to be a small group of people anyway that are able to do that, there's only so many coaches. Um, the app works really well too, because it's going to take you through these same processes. A lot of what I've been talking about um, plus, you know, again, I don't prep folks for some of these mm-hmm. initial assessments. So I don't have a ton of experience doing that, but this is their bread and butter. And this is what they're excellent at. And they're going to do the mental performance piece. And they're going to talk to you about nutrition and sleep and all of those things. And that's delivered through the app as well. So if you're serious about it, that's where I would suggest folks go. Yeah, I imagine you're seeing you're seeing the results of that in front of you at some point. So if people that have gone through this program are winding up in front of you. And so mm-hmm. I'm sure, and if you do that and you find, and you do make it through, I would assume like that's the kind of client or in this case, athlete slash operator you want in front of you is the one that's already done a lot of the hard work. You're not having mm-hmm. to do any convincing or maybe it's less, maybe it's yeah. less convincing or, you know, less untangling the sticky web of whatever they've created for themselves that you have to, again, pardon my language again, but potentially unfuck to help them continue to be successful down down the line. So that's an yeah. awesome recommendation. These coaches wrote a textbook on how to prepare for selection and I have copies of it. It's something, it's what I wish was available when I first became a tactical strength cool. conditioning coach. It's essentially everything I had to learn trial by fire for 10 years plus some and they they put it in a book and anybody can buy it so a lot of folks that are gearing up for their selection process they'll get the book and they'll go through their app so then they have the why behind what they're Mm -hmm. doing and they have the experts organizing the training smart uh and it's like a vertical model right they're kind of handling everything and when they have people like you that are endorsing it i think that's a really good um that's a that's an awesome endorsement a uh, couple last questions here. Let's just kind of mm-hmm. finish up. Like 10 years, that's a long time to be doing anything, right? Um, mm-hmm. Talk about the future. Like, what does this thing look like for you? Do you do this do for another 10 years or till the wheels fall off? Or, you know, is there, are there special projects you might be working on or things on the outside you can tell us about? So I love my day job. I have no plans on leaving it anytime soon. It's it's the ultimate challenge because the problems will likely never be solved or they're right. going to change as you know fighting changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get new people in every year who need a different kind of help. Um, but I did start this company, Warfighter Health and Performance, um, selling programming right now. And we do consulting with um, tactical organizations. So if they're looking for some performance help or they're trying to get a performance team or some programming, and that includes mental performance, that includes nutrition set up for their team or within their organization, or if they're looking for like some weekend education, that's something that we can provide. And all of my coaches have been in special operations for five plus years. So segue, that's a perfect segue into the next thing. How do they find out more about that? Where do they go? How do they contact you? What can you tell us? So we just got a website up, warfighterhp.com. 
Um, it'll link you to your training. It'll link to um, this podcast and other podcasts that I've done if you want to learn a little bit more about the methodology from the strength and conditioning side. Um, and there's uh, an email on the site that you can contact if you're interested in consulting. I mean, that's pretty easy, pretty straightforward. Uh, man, so when I originally, so in wrapping this up, when we, when we connected and we were connected by somebody in the community uh, that put us together, um, and I'm so grateful for that. You know, just going back to like social media and we start before we started recording today, like I'm not a huge fan of social media. Like I, I, I do my best within it, but if, if we didn't have that, uh, at some level, this may not have happened. And right. so, uh, I want to just, you know, kind of just acknowledge the importance of the, of community and people reaching out and talking to people. And, and, you know, I had this, I don't know, 45 minute conversation with you once that connection happened, which just for me, it was so enriching and nourishing, which is why I started the podcast was that was largely selfish is that I was just looking for smart conversations with smart people as I was looking out there and seeing like where the, the transition was happening, say between fitness and, um, the firearms community, which often involves a lot of law enforcement, military, ex-military and people that I was talking to and how are they consuming this information and who's providing it for them and where is it coming from? Um, and more specifically, like, what are they paying for? Uh, because I'm in the fitness business and I'm very curious about this, like what, what exists out there. And what I found very quickly was, is that a lot of these conversations, the people that had very loud voices weren't actually doing the work. They were selling a lot of shit, but they hadn't done a lot of work to get there. And, um, you know, as a guy from the fitness industry, I'd seen, that's a very common tale just in general across the board. So it was no different in what I, what I was looking at. And so I, search, I was searching for these, these higher level conversations to kind of understand what was really happening by the, from the people that are actually doing the work mm-hmm. um, and, and actually exploring the science and actually had di- uh, data and it was facts over feelings and you know, could, could, could talk about 10 years of experience and been there from the beginning to kind of where things are. And those are people that are not necessarily like big on Instagram. Um, and you know, or, or, or YouTube or anything else. And, and, and you're not. And I think that's an important thing to, 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 to note here is that probably the reason you're not is because you're busy doing the fucking work and you're, you know, and, and people are getting that result. And if you weren't doing a good job with that, particularly with the level and type of people that you're working with, my, I have a hunch that you probably wouldn't have stayed there very long. Uh, either they'd have rooted you out of there. Um, you just self-selected out of there or they'd have figured out a way to get you the hell out of there uh, because of the the importance of the job that you're doing. So that said, I am a huge fan and uh, it's just so cool to have such a smart conversation with such a smart person who just gets it. It's just, it's supernatural. And, you know, there are tons of people in the world of human performance that cross over into these genres. And I don't think they get the, the credit they deserve. And I think that's a shame. And I know a lot of times it's because you're not looking for credit, right? You're, that's not, it's not why you're doing, doing the show. I mean, we talked about that. Like it's about getting the, the right information out there, but I just want to acknowledge that. And I think for anybody, anybody that's listening to this show, I'm putting a plug in right now, share this shit, share this shit with your buddies that are in some type of a team or a unit, you know, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's, you know, in, uh, you know, in the military, you know, people that are aspiring to do those things and, you know, c- 
because there's a qualified professional that's inside actually doing doing the work uh, that that matters that 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 then translates. So that's the first thing is the endorsement. Um, the second thing is is like it shouldn't be limited to that because all of the concepts, all the things that we've talked today, mm-hmm. cross over into general health, fitness, and wellness. I mean, every single bit of that. If you're just trying to stay fit for life, action, the mat the court, the bike ride with the kids on the weekend, the hike, the backpack trip, the, the whatever, all the shit applies. It's just, it's just in what context. So right. uh, yeah. thank you so much for your time. Casey. Thank you for having that. me. This has been really fun. Always enjoy talking to you now that we're your best friend. Yeah. I, I mean, seriously, I mean, I, I think it, speaking of friendships, I think that, you know, again, the friendships that I formed that connected this, this thing here, um, this has only happened in the last year and it's just sort of validating and confirming like all the things that I, you know, the reasons I'm doing this show, um, because I don't make, I don't make money doing this stuff. Like this is, this is just, this is a passion project for me in a lot of ways, but uh, like in having the conversation, I've learned so much more. I think there's a larger, there's a place to have a platform for folks like you and the others again, like that have connected us today and beyond to have a voice in a little bit of a different way. And I am super stoked to potentially explore that and be a part of that. So I'm going to ask you to promise me something. And that is that you, that at some point we can have another one of these conversations soon, either on the record or off. Um, because I think it can help a lot of other people, uh, both in the profession and those that you guys help. So, um, are you in or out? I'm definitely in. And if people have specific questions, especially if you're at one of these tactical organizations that doesn't have funding or doesn't have um, a performance team or access to a performance team. If, if I'm going to put you on blast here, if they want to send you those questions, um, I'd be happy to come on and answer them, um, answer any questions that I'm capable of answering. Oh, hell yeah. That is a great idea. I'm going to put that out there right now. So for anybody that, um, for anybody that is listening to this and has questions, the best place to put those questions for this particular format would be DM me, um, make mention, reference the podcast, DM me. I will make a log of these. I'll put these in the and I will share them with Casey. And then we can maybe jump on for a short one, like a Q&A, where we can fire this stuff back and forth and kind of talk about it. That would be fantastic. And then maybe down the road, like we could even put together like a panel of people to kind of kind of do this and give people access to it. I mean, I think there's guys that learn. That is an awesome idea. Thanks for putting that out there. So you heard it. An excuse to nerd out again. Yeah. If you have questions. Yeah. Hell yes. Yeah. All day long. Cause this is, this is the stuff that matters to me. It's what gets my, keeps my motor running. So, um, again, without risk of overdoing it, thank you so much for taking time out for me, for the listeners, um, and for everything that you're doing for the community. This is important shit. Um, for, you know, for a lot of reasons and I commend you for it. So, um, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Iron Sights. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can support our mission by hitting the subscribe button, leaving a review and sharing the podcast with a friend. I'll see you on the next episode.